Welcome back to a brand new series of Mud Between Your Toes. In this series, I'm going to let my guests do the talking. And let me tell you, I have a fabulous lineup of people, many with strong links to Zimbabwe and others less so, but all with a great story to tell. So sit back and enjoy the new Conversations with Pete Wood. In today's episode, I'm honored to be speaking to Douglas Rogers, who's one of the most successful writers to emerge from Zimbabwe in recent years. Douglas is an award-winning author, journalist, and travel writer, possibly best known for his wonderful and witty book, The Last Resort, hailed by the New York Times as the best book on ordinary life for blacks and whites under the Mugabe dictatorship. So Douglas, a thousand thanks for joining me all the way from New York City. Thank you, Peter. I'm no longer in New York, in, uh, in the rural, uh, in the countryside of, of Western Virginia. Ah, <laughs> uh, oh, how beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I remember visiting there with Annabelle Hughes. Um, right. Listen, you've written two critically acclaimed books, The Last Resort and more recently, Two Weeks in November. Let's get to your writing career a little bit later. But first, do you remember the evening we first met in New York City? I think it was just after you published The Last Resort. Well, it was about 10 years ago. Um, I wow. recall it was a sweltering summer night, right? And we went to a place called The Frying Pan. On a, it was a boat. Ah, uh, that was at the end of the evening after, uh, uh, yeah, no, it was chaotic, wasn't it? You know, we, we, we I was with Annabelle Hughes, Annabelle Hughes-Aston, yes. um, and I had brought along also a guest of mine, Gabby Derbyshire, who I think was the COO or at least the, one of the founders of that highly successful but now defunct celebrity yeah. gossip blog, gawker.com. Um, right, I, think, right, I mean, right. it was very popular. It had 23 million hits a month. But anyway, I, I think the, I remember the whole evening turned into chaos because, um, you know, I ended up having a row with Annabelle. And I say, I apologize now, <laughs> Annabelle, if you're listening to this. Um, but, you know, but, and, and this is absolutely true. I had no idea I was meeting you. And I actually had your book, the last resort in my tote bag at the time. That's what I was reading. So I think you signed it for me. Oh, terrific, terrific. Um, it's, all, it's all lost in the mists of time though, hey? Like uh, as you get on those uh, boozy nights or a, uh, uh, a fog. <laughs> it, was, it was incredibly rowdy. I don't know what the hell we were drinking. And I yeah. was regaling you with stories from my childhood. And yes. it, was, it was then, Douglas, that you said I should write a book. So I have you to thank for my rather <laughs> humble book, by the way. You're kidding. You're kidding. I loved your book. And uh, 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 we went to the same school, same boarding school. I can't remember what, what house you were in. I was in, um, I was in Jameson. You were in Jameson. Okay. Well, Jameson, what, yeah. Okay. That was... Uh, uh, unusual, you know. I thought you would be a Rhodes boy. I was in Salou House. Salou, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so, I mean, okay. You must have been at least six years younger than me. So, I don't suppose we crossed paths. But who was your English teacher at Prince Edward? Because they really pushed out great uh, students of English language. 
I believe my English teacher was a guy named either Hannes or Peter de Brain. Uh, mine mine was a guy. Other, uh, mine was a guy called John Haig. But was he, he wasn't still... there when I was there. Okay, um, he was an absolute genius. I've got to tell you, absolute genius. Oh, fantastic! So um, uh, you're a prince. Uh, you're an old Herrarian. Um, yes. We crossed may have crossed paths, but it's highly unlikely. I left school at a re reasonably early age. I might add, not uh, because I wanted to. I was asked to. Um, oh, you expelled from boarding school. From well, I was, I, was, I was asked to leave. I was asked to leave. <laughs> well, what had you done? I think um, smoking too many cigarettes. You know, you didn't have to do yeah. too much in those days to get uh, yeah, kicked yeah, out. Yeah. Let's let's get to your career now. You've written for all, uh, for amongst others, the Independent. Sunday Telegraph, Daily Telegraph, The Guardian, Travel and Leisure, The New Yorker, the list goes on actually. How did you get into writing? So um, I was always good at uh, essays at, at high school. I, my favorite subject was English. So I, I was good at, um, uh, I got, I think an A in A-level English. Um, and I had no clue when I left school, I had no clue what I wanted to do. And um, a friend of my parents was a career counselor. And for some reason, I don't know how it happened, she, she sort of mentioned that you go to Rhodes University and do journalism. And I instantly knew that's, that's what I wanted to do. Um, although I went to Rhodes University ostensibly, my father sent me there to do a business degree. Um, and as soon as him and my mother were out of sight, I changed and did journalism. Um, and then worked on a newspaper in Johannesburg for two years. Um, it was that period, early 90s, 93, 94, quite a crazy... Very turbulent time. Yeah, yeah. And I was a reporter then. And there was a, there was a group of um, journalists uh, in Joburg who were called the Brat Pack or something. And they used to go around the world to all these war zones and do incredible work. Yeah, they, they were the Bang Bang Club. The Bang Bang Club, that was it, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jao Silva and um, Greg Marinovich and those guys. Um, I kind of, I was the uh, sort of wet behind the ears reporter then, so, but I knew some of those guys. Um, but I always wanted to write long form. I wasn't a good news reporter. I'm not good under, uh, under fire, so to speak. I wanted to write long form and I'm, I moved to the UK. Uh, I think you did as well, didn't you? You, you started before I, Hong Kong? Yeah, I, I went to the UK in 1980. Yeah, I was there way, uh, maybe 12 years after that. 93, 94, I moved to the UK. And I actually I remember this very well. Um, I wanted to be a writer. I worked in restaurants for a year in London and saved money and bought a laptop computer. Um, and then I did a trip back to Zimbabwe and I, I did it. I went on a, a trip to Mozambique, up down the coast of Mozambique. It was 1995, maybe, 96. And I wrote a piece on it and I just sent it on spec. I wrote a travel piece and I sent it on spec to the Daily Telegraph. Back in those days, there were still fax machines, right? And, and there was this an editor there. I'd been given the name of a travel editor there named Tessa Boas. And she, I never expected to hear back, but she, they ran it on the front of the travel section. And then uh, she asked me to do other stories and I, I, I was away. Um, so, so you mentioned Mozambique. I mean, it must have been incredible in 1995, you say, but you also yeah. wrote 
in National Ge Geographic. And I think this is quite interesting because um, it shows how small a world it is that we live in. Yeah. But you wrote a National Geographic piece about Mandy Retzlar from Mozambique Horse Safaris. I also did a podcast on her recently. Oh, oh she's the best. What she's an interesting best. story, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just a brilliant character. Yeah, that was, I, I did a, a piece on her and well, Mozambique and based around her, it was about five years ago, I think, um, stayed at their safari lodge and uh, met up actually, intriguingly enough, another reason I wanted to do that story was uh, uh, my old, you asked my old teachers, my old junior school teacher, a man named Richard Etwell was kind of lying low in Mozambique in that same area of Villanculos. So I went there to find him and I did track him down and at the same time stayed with Mandy and I'd read her book um, about the horses. 104 horses, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and, and so when was this? This was quite recently then. Not quite, maybe it was five years ago, two, maybe 90, no, sorry, 2012, 13. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Six, seven years. So, so you do quite a lot of uh, traveling around. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of travel writing and um, uh, mostly in the states now. Um, and then obviously the, the books in between that. God, um, you know, um, I read Paul Theroux's late last book on Angola. Oh my God, it was so depressing. Yeah, Zona Verde. Oh, bloody hell, you know, didn't really yeah, make yeah. you want to travel there. But mind you, you know, he had a terrible time. I mean, one of his colleagues yeah. was killed and lost all his money and... Um... Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, so, right, Douglas Rogers, drum roll. Um, the Last Resort and two weeks in November. Let's start with The Last Resort. I adored reading it. It's so smooth and well edited and and despite those really troubled times in Zimbabwe, it's actually a really surreal and, and funny story of your parents' attempts at running a guest house. Can you tell us about the book? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, I was, uh, I, I was a freelance writer living in London, um, doing these uh, travel stories for The Telegraph, The Guardian. I was traveling all over the world, but I'd left Zimbabwe kind of found Zimbabwe by conservative parents, very parochial and Zimbabwe was this sort of boring conservative country. I didn't want to spend time there. I wanted to go to all these cool, cool places. And I thought I was living the, the most exciting life. And then obviously, as you know, in 2000, the land invasion started. Um, and my parents were caught up in the middle of that, having a farm in Eastern Zimbabwe in, uh, it was basically woodsy area outside Mutari. Um, and I started going back from about 2002. I would get these assignments and wrote a number of stories about them and about Zim and what it was going through um, for various British newspapers. And here's the thing that you may recognize. Zim was the biggest story in the UK, the biggest international story for a number of years, right? And I would, I would write these earnest stories about how terrible it was and how my parents were um, going through this awful time and this terrible dictator Mugabe. And that was the story that I just kept churning out. Um, and then I would go, I went back on one visit to my parents and they had this, they built this backpackers lodge called Drifters, um, which had become very popular in the 1990s. Okay. And it was in the Lonely Planet and um, 
uh, had a pizza night. It was a very successful budget resort. And the one trip I went back from London, and it was about 2003, 2004, I discovered that all the tourists had now dried up. There was no business. Um, but my father had started growing a, a small marijuana crop in the backyard to make, uh, hopefully to sell it. And then the lodge itself was basically an informal brothel. Um, and my parents at the age of like in their late sixties had become um, brothel keepers. Um, <laughs> and so I, I started telling a friend in New York, a writer friend of mine named Melanie Thernstrom, I said this terrible story about my parents and what's come to them. And she was literally in tears, but tears of laughter. She was saying, I'm sorry, but that's the funniest story I've ever heard. And it suddenly something clicked. Instead of writing the same story about oh, what a bad Mugabe was and how, what victims like black and white Zimbabweans were, I suddenly realized I could write this story in a completely different way. And it could be about character and resourcefulness and humor and Zimbabweans, white and black, have a, a distinctive character, you know, and they're able to um, get through a lot by laughing at it. And I, I found my voice, and that's the kind of writing I do now. Is I try and be, try and find humor um, in, in everyday life. Yeah, and then also tell stories about ordinary people, you know, everyday people caught up in things that are beyond their control and. I mean, I, th I think it's worth mentioning to my listeners, isn't it? Something about those diamond fields that were discovered near where your parents lived. Because they play a major part in the story. Well, they do. So um, I, I, I'd written this proposal and I'd got a book deal um, from Random House. And it was based on a proposal um, from about two trips I'd made back. And I, I then made a number of trips back to continue writing the story and to, to finish it. And I would go back and my parents, and they would walk me around the lodge or drive me to Matari. And I was thinking that the, the insanity of what was happening, I mean, you know about the current the inflation and the, the bricks of money and the losing and, and what hassles you get to try and get a passport, losing your nationality, things like that. One of the craziest things was um, my parents' lodge became a haven for diamond dealers because one of the biggest alluvial diamond fields on earth had been discovered basically in their backyard in Marangi. Um, and for a brief time, for a couple of years, Mutari was this wild frontier town full of illicit money from like Belgium and Israel and Lebanon and crazy cowboys. And a lot of them would hang out at my parents' lodge. And I, I, at that point, I started to think that my father was organizing these things for me because it just became too absurd uh, and great material the book. I mean, I think it's safe to say it became a very dangerous neighborhood, didn't it? Because once the army, the Zimbabwe army had taken over yeah. the diamond fields, then it became kind of a no-go area. Yeah, they went in uh, after the, the 2000, I believe the 2008 elections, they just wiped these guys out. They flew over with helicopters, shot people, just cleared out the villages and the, what they've called the gwedges, the, the diamond illegal diamond dealers who would sell who would, who would get rich just sort of finding diamonds under a bush right digging in the shallow sand and then what the, the government uh, went in there um and cleaned them out and took control of that field um ironically like well a friend of mine a guy from pe nigel huff you may know yes of course um, 
he actually had the rights to that. He, him and a company that he owned had the had the rights to that diamond field. Uh, wow, what's happening? Being Zimbabwe, it being Zimbabwe, the state didn't recognize that and kicked them off. Bloody hell! So, I mean, is the is Drifters the Backpackers Lodge still going? No, it's not. I mean, it's still there. Um, um, sadly, my mom passed away um, eighteen months ago. Uh, my dad is still on the property, but the, there's no tourists in Zimbabwe. And he's sort of in his 80s, and uh, it became too much of a hassle to to keep running. But there's a there's a potential that he's found a, a buyer, which would be a, a great. There's um, a terrific artist from Zimbabwe named Mishik Masambu. He's a fantastic painter, um, and he's interested in purchasing it and using it as a studio and a gallery and an art school, which would be great because my mother, like she always had a gallery in the lodge. She was a painter, loved, uh, was, was a, uh, an artist. So it would be great if that guy took it over. But at the moment, it's, it's, it lies empty. So, I mean, is your old man safe there? Because, I mean, as I said, it's, not an, it's quite a dangerous area, isn't it? Um, the diamond stuff has calmed down. Um, the um i think he's fairly safe i mean no more so than anyone else out in the country yeah, in zimbabwe yeah it, it, exactly i mean they still have farm invasions i mean people still knock on your door but he actually amazingly he, he actually got the title deed back to his property one of the few people who did and partly because it was never agricultural land it was wrongly um listed mm. yeah um, and it took him years and years and years, but he, he actually got it back last year. Um, so he's more, it's just the isolation, you know, and especially this coronavirus, because for some reason they've shut down Zimbabwe as well. And um, so he's very isolated. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, the last resort, I mean, on your, I think this is on your website, uh, it says, Pot has supplanted maize in the fields. Hookers have replaced college kids as guests. And soldiers, spies, and teenage diamond de dealers guzzle beer at the bar. Beyond the farm gates, meanwhile, rogue politicians, witch doctors, and armed war veterans loyal to President Mugabe circle like hungry lions. Now, if that doesn't get anyone buying the book, I don't know what does. <laughs> yeah, that's a good blurb. Um... Uh, yeah, and, and it's an adventure story. It, it's sort of, it, it's comic, but uh, it's kind of like a, a coming of age story for, uh, for me, you know, and discovering that far from being boring and parochial, my parents were a, much cooler than I was, more adventurous than I was, more tied to a country than I was. And I sort of, they found a, I found writing the book and getting, I found I, I got to know them and I got to know my country and amazing people and characters. Um, I, think, I think that entire generation there were far cooler than our yeah. generation for some reason. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, we came along, we were far more conservative. Now, yeah. uh, two weeks in November, this is your latest book and it reads yeah. like a John le Carre novel. It's fast, it's exciting, it's full of suspense. I mean, seriously, it's thrilling and yeah. true. Um, yeah. uh, you know, again, to quote your website, two weeks in November is Ocean's Eleven meets Game of Thrones. Well, I'm not sure about that. I felt it was far more of a spy uh, story. Right, 
Right. Tell us uh, how you ended up writing that. Um, okay, so here's another connection you and I have. Uh, um, a man named Michael Bowles, who I know in Virginia, who you grew up with, right? In Zimbabwe. Yes, absolutely. On, on Chiwi Estate. Yes, yes. So Michael, I met. Well, I mean, actually, uh, my mum said Michael was the loudest baby she's ever known in her <laughs> life. <laughs> well, he's, he's still quite loud, actually. After a few years, anyway. Um, but uh, here's the story. I'll, I'll try and give you the, the precede version. Um, I basically did a, a road trip. I, w I wanted to write about Mozambique again. Um, it's always fascinated me, and I always find crazy characters in Mozambique. And um, I was, this is now 2017, right? Um, and I got a message from my father that a uh, old school friend of mine named Michael Donald had gone to was had been arrested in northern Mozambique for arms dealing and he was same age as me from my town his mother was a local florist his father played golf with my dad a middle-class family like mine and this guy had been arrested for arms dealing in Mozambique and I thought I'm 50 years old living in a white picket fenced house with two kids in a station wagon and a dog in Virginia and I thought what the hell's happened in my life how did this guy's life end up so adventurous? Um, and I wanted to go and find him. And I roped in Michael and another friend of mine called Craig Ellis, another Zimbabwean from Virginia. Um, we flew out to Zimbabwe to go and meet this friend of mine, or we'll go and find this friend of mine in Northern Mozambique, Michael, Mike Donald. Um, a guy called John Coe, who lives in Eastern Zimbabwe, he was driving, he's another friend, he had an old Mercedes Benz, and we did this road trip. This Mercedes Benz, set off from Zimbabwe in November of 2017. And we'd gone about six days when uh, the coup took place in Zimbabwe, uh, the removal of, the beginning of the removal of Mugabe by his deputy, uh, Emerson Munangagwa, who he had fired. Um, and Munangagwa had gone on the run and he had actually gone on the run into Mozambique. He had fled Zimbabwe on, for his life into Mozambique. Me and my friends now are in Mozambique thinking, what the hell is happening here? Let's go back to Zimbabwe and take part in this adventure, you know? And so we did that. We were in Harare for the big march that took place. Um, and um, basically this time of incredible tension. Um, and uh, everyone is high on adrenaline, a mixture of this uh, fear and exhilaration, right? Um, and Mugabe was deposed and removed and this guy Munangagwa came in and I went flew back at the end of this all back to the States with, with Michael and I said I can write a book about this. I'll just write a book about the coup and about this road trip and ending up with the removal of Mugabe, right? So I got a, a book deal and I flew back and all I, all I had to do was to speak to the military who had carried out this operation. Um, I had the backstory, I had my personal story, um, how I'd got caught up in these events, but I wanted to speak to the military and say like, how did you carry out what had been called the perfect coup? Um, but obviously this is Zimbabwe, the military don't speak. Um, and I tried everyone, uh, any contacts I had, and I was thinking I'm never gonna be able to write this book, what's the point? And then, Here's the connection with my previous book was a friend of my father's who I mentioned in the last resort, 
I called him, he's a businessman and quite well connected. And I said, can you put me in touch with anyone in the Zimbabwe military, any senior officers? And he said, no, I can't, and they're not gonna to speak to you, but I do know someone who has a story to tell. And I said, who is it? And he said, I'll send you his, his number. And he sent me a number, a cell phone number and a first name, Tom. And it was a cell number in South Africa. And, I, and he said, this is the guy you need to speak to. I didn't think much of it. I was back in Harare a day later and I met up with this uh, MDC activist who had returned to Zim from exile in South Africa. And I was meeting with him and I said, hey, I need to speak to military guys. And he said, these guys won't talk, but I do know someone who has a story to tell. I said, who is it? And he sent me a text, he, he sent me a number and a last name, Ellis. And they were the same numbers, the one, same number had been given the day before. And what happened then like made my book because I called this number and the guy on the phone who I call in the book, Tom Ellis, proceeded on a phone call for about an hour to tell me how he was involved and instrumental in the coup and had formed a team in Johannesburg of these, the CIO assassin who had gone down to kill him and he had turned him and they were working together. And then a lawyer named Gabriel Shumba, who was part of this operation, um, a war veterans leader named Chris Muchangwa. And I, I, this is all on a phone call. And I thought, well, this guy's bullshitting me, right? This is just out, too outrageous. And then he proceeded to say, I'll introduce you to the people that I'm telling you about. And then began this crazy adventure and I discovered what he had told me was all true. And I had a, again, I had like a, a sort of dark comedy adventure about ordinary people caught up in something that basically was beyond their control almost, um, but too outrageous for words. Um, and yeah, that's two weeks in November. I mean, the, the, the fascinating thing is that I don't think many of us who grew up in Zimbabwe, we knew how insidious the CIO and that underworld was, but I, yeah. didn't, I don't think I realized just how switched yeah. on they were, particularly yeah. outside of Zimbabwe. I mean, you can run, yeah. but you can't hide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These guys, uh, relates to the country you're living in, I think. I think of the... Uh, China trains a lot of these guys, and um, the, the, my, my main character, I should say, so Tom Ellis is the main character, along with his assassin, this guy I call Casper in the book. And I, I know Casper now very well. I'm in touch with all these guys all the time. And he is the most compelling character I've ever met. I mean, not, not, not just to write about, just as a human being. Uh, he's the James Bond of, of Zimbabwe, um, but he grew up comes from a township outside Harare, grew up in a shack, has no, I mean, he, he's like one of the foot soldiers for this regime, right? But he was, something had been troubling him. And, and I think sort of he, he was looking for comradeship and friendship. And I think to, in some ways, it comes across maybe in the book to absolve himself of his sins by doing something that he considered was good for a change. Um, and he, he's just a, a remarkable character. And these guys risked their lives. I mean, they, they did daring stuff to try and get other military guys on their side to turn against Mugabe. Um, he, he had all these aliases and disguises, and he brought on a team of his fellow spies who he sort of, he was the, the ringleader, but he brought on these other operatives to work with him. And an incredibly brave guy. Um, and I mean, I speak to him now and he sort of 
I asked him if he has ever awarded, and he goes, no, uh, no pain, no gain. And um, uh, these guys are forgotten by the current regime who, who, who they helped get power. Very much like Homeland, I suppose. Um, yes. In a way, were, yeah, were, you, yeah. were you ever in danger? No, uh, no, I wasn't actually. Um, I, I um, and to be honest, I haven't actually been back to Zimbabwe since the book was published. Um, I was going to go in February for a, a book tour of South Africa and a bit of Zim. And then, then COVID hit. Right? Yeah, COVID happened and I couldn't go. Um, what, what, what did happen was that there's, uh, um, you all know, Jonathan Moyer, the former information minister, um, who actually interviewed. What, what I wanted to do, let me just sort of step back. I wanted to tell, I'm bored of Zimbabwean politics. I don't like Zimbabwean politics. I don't like any of these political parties. Um, and what I like about Zimbabwe, and a bit with, which we mentioned in my previous book, I like the characters and I like the personalities and the surreal nature of Zimbabwe and how people interact with each other. Um, and because there's comedy in that and there's heart in that and humanity in that. And so I, I wrote a book that's basically a boy's own adventure about four and a couple of other people who are connected to them, including the sons of the current president. Um, but I wanted to tell us an adventure story. And in a way, I wanted to do that to get away from the sort of the politics doesn't interest me, but also I wanted to tell an African story in a way that an American who's never heard of Africa or never heard of Zimbabwe or Mugabe and is not interested in it would pick it up uh, like an airport thriller and finish it in a day. Um, I wanted to basically write a paperback page turner, you know, and I, I succeeded. I think. And I think maybe a movie on the way to tell you the truth, because it's, it's yeah, one of yeah, those well, really fast moving. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. On a, on a personal note, I see in your favorite books, you mention My Traitor's Heart by Rian Malan. I mean, yeah. what an incredible book and, and, and how brave to have written that. I've always felt he deserved a Nobel Prize for Literature. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, that's the masterpiece of white African literature for me. Isn't it incredible? Yes. But yeah. then, but yeah. then there's, another, there's another one, right? Uh, Harari North. Now, to yeah. the uninitiated, Harari North is what uh, people, uh, Zimbabweans who had gone over to England called Brixton because there were so many Zimbabweans there. And it was written by a guy called Brian Chikwava. Um, look, I found that was really hard going because it's kind of written in a Zimbabwean accent or dialect yes. and reading it. I mean, it's a bit like Ian M. Banks' book, Fearsome Engine. You know, it's very hard to read until you start speaking aloud and then your yeah. Zimbabwe accent kicks in and You're then phonetic. suddenly it yeah. starts making sense. Yeah, no, I, I love that book. Uh, it, yeah, you, you mentioned Ian Banks. I was thinking of like Irving Welsh. It's it's like... Um, well, 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 maybe I'm wrong. Was it Ian M. Banks who wrote Fearsome Engine? Uh, I think you're right. Uh, I think you're right. You, you're right. And it's written... Th those books have the Scottish dialects that I'm That's part correct. Of. Yeah. And so Brian wrote this about a spy. He, he's basically a CIO guy. He was a green bomber who was in Brixton. And in the same way, I mean, I, I, I know him sort of... I haven't spoken to him recently, but... I wanted to do a similar thing with my book in that I wanted to humanize a bad guy. Um, so his main character in, in that book 
he's like a he's a thug who's had to flee Zimbabwe, who's done bad things, and then he becomes like a a thief in in Harare, and and he's he's bewitched and stuff like that. But what I loved about it was was uh, just the comedy and the darkness of it, um, and it reminded me of of, of Train Spotting. Um, yeah, it's 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 it, it's uh, well a lot of writing coming out of Zimbabwe has this dark sort of humor. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, Bettina Bettina Gapper Bettina, is yeah. also another yeah. one. I mean, wow, you know what a great yeah. writer. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Douglas, you know, I'm seeing the time sort of clicking over here. So um, can you tell us what you're working on now? I mean, any new books, any projects? I mean, are you keeping yourself busy yeah. during lockdown? Yeah, so, so I'm working on a, actually the book that I set out to write in Mozambique with Michael, the road trip I made, right? Um, I have a working title. It's um, A Leap Over the White Picket Fence. Um, oh, nice, nice one, nice one. Yeah, yeah, and, and I want it to be sort of like eat, pray, love for guys, but with like with vintage cars and a lot of drinking and maybe a few guns and a military coup, right? But basically, <laughs> a, a story of four middle-aged guys, married, kind of with kids, and they, they, our, our exciting lives are gone, you know. But we go on this one last adventure. Well, maybe hopefully not one last, but we go on this adventure. We go on a road trip to find an adventure. Um, and I think it's something that when you turn 50 in your late 40s and your 50s, um, guys do, you know, we, we're sort of trying to hold on in some way to what we, who we were, but then also we realize we're, we're, we're nearing the end of the road in a way. Um, so that's why I, I kind of think of it as the hangover, but set in Africa. Um, and, and, and have you done this road trip already? I mean, did you go back yeah. after the military coup and finish it? No, basically it's, it's going to be the story of how, uh, the story of that road trip and it ends with the coup, right? Um, and it's going to be about these characters of tracking down my friend in Northern Mozambique, Michael, who was arrested for arms dealing in Mozambique and the characters we meet along the way, and then all the calls we have with our wives back in the States um, who are worried about us or, or saying, oh, don't do anything we wouldn't do. And meanwhile, we're crossing a border at, uh, to attend a, a, a march in Harare. And um, basically, yeah, sort of reliving lost youth in a way. Um, oh, it, it sounds fantastic. I actually can't wait. So when are you hoping to get that out? <laughs> Um, I, I've, I've, I'm about a third of the way through, so I hope, hope to finish it by the end of the year. Um, and also, yeah, so again, I want, to, I want to write it for not people who necessarily want to read about Africa, but people who are turning 50 and uh, uh, have this sort of same urge, you know, to uh, rekindle something or um, like you leave the white picket fence. I'm just wondering whether there's another connection to Michael Michael Donald. Uh, um, is is his sister Beverly, Beverly uh, Davy, um, Beverly Donald? No, maybe not. Then um, okay, okay. Um, I tell you what, Michael Donald is. His brother was the chief animator on Game of Thrones. He designed all the, the oh wow dragons. Yeah, so that's oh, wow. part. Of that's part of the story, getting to Mozambique and 
um, discovering my friend's brother is sort of the, the superstar uh, designer on the hottest show in the world at the time. Wow, it's, it sounds brilliant. And uh, The Last Resort in two weeks in November, all of these books are available in good bookstores and on Amazon. Um, yeah. and, and when are you going back to Zimbabwe? Any plans? Is it actually, um, yeah. is it safe for you to go back having written this book? Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it, it is. I mean, the um, current government, it's, it's, it's the, the kind of people I wrote about, the, my four main characters helped to get the current um, regime in power. So um, I, I wouldn't have trouble with that. But if, if when the current president was removed and the former people came to power, I don't know what would happen then. But uh, I think it's fine. I mean, I, I, what, what I love about the reaction to my, my book is how, to two weeks in November, is how it's a hit with ordinary Zimbabweans, with black Zimbabweans. So with, I get emails from people like taxi drivers, you know, or Shabin owners. <laughs> Zimbabweans, it, it really struck a nerve there and caused a, uh, a lot of conversation. And uh, people would write to me and say, this is the, this is kind of, uh, you mentioned John Le Carre or Ian Fleming, um, and the spy novel of Zimbabwe. It was, a, it was a very heady, exciting time. And, and it's kind of sad that the Mnangagwa regime has been a spectacular failure yeah. as well, hasn't it? I mean... Yeah, yeah. What's changed, you know? Yeah, very little. Look, yeah. um, we're running out of time. So, you know, thanks so much for giving up your time to do this. It, I suppose it's getting a bit late in New York. Um, I'd really love to meet up in better times and have another rowdy evening. Um, yes, yes. I'd love of that. course, you're not in New York. You're in Virginia. Um, well, come and stay. Next time you're here, come and stay. And you know where Annabelle lived. I live very close to where Annabelle used to live. Oh, what a beautiful part of the world. So, Douglas Rogers, thank you so much for joining me on Conversations. Thank you, Peter. Uh, great chatting to you again. Ah, oh, brilliant. Bye. Bye. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.